Hello, this episode is part two of my conversation with Annie Marlowe and Dick Clark from Envirotecture. Now in this episode, we're talking about Passive House and we're specifically discussing the opportunity that Passive House provides for you to protect your indoor air quality. Of course, the bushfires and the smoke pollution that many areas in Australia suffered from over our 2019-2020 summer, they really tested uh, homes generally, but they particularly tested the air filtration capacity of the Passive House system. And there's some fantastic results uh, from testing during that time that Andy's going to be sharing more information about in this episode. We'll also be talking about the active systems that you can use to create better fire protection for your home. And we're going to be talking about Andy and Dick's other business, Passive House Design and Construct, and what that business offers for those that are wanting to manage budget and sustainability whilst creating a Passive House certified home. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, pause this podcast, head back and do that now. We'll be here when you get back. I promise we're not going anywhere. And make sure as well, I forgot to mention at the end of our last episode, all of the resources from the research that I did and the uh, the things that we reference in our conversation, you can find them in the resources for both these podcast episodes. So make sure you check that out as well. So let's dive into part two now. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Welcome to season 12 of the Get It Right podcast called Rebuild and Build Better. This season includes a range of conversations with some fantastic experts and professionals, and we're diving into a range of topics related to rebuilding after bushfires, building or renovating in bushfire-prone areas, and more generally, designing and building more resilient homes. This season of the podcast has been inspired by one of our Undercover Architect course members who has over 20 years experience in disaster recovery and saw the need, given our recent summer bushfires in Australia, for a resource to help people rebuilding their homes after bushfire. He's been a great help to me in connecting me with information and people I can now share with you. You can see video versions of all of our interviews, as well as get a copy of the full transcripts, plus loads more helpful resources for your journey on the Undercover Architect website. Head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all the info you need to rebuild and build better. Now let's get on with the episode. Now we met Andy and Dick in our last episode, but let me, let me quickly remind you of how amazing and talented they both are. So Dick Clark is principal of Envirotecture and Dick is an accredited building designer. He has over 35 years experience focusing exclusively on ecologically sustainable and culturally appropriate buildings, as well as sustainable design in vehicles and vessels. And he's received many design awards. Dick has a huge number of accolades and roles that he's contributed to the industry over his career. He's been design director of many hundreds of projects over that 35 years and sustainability has been the major driver over that whole period and he would have seen some pretty significant changes in that time frame. He's often called on for expert comment on sustainable design and due to his experience as a rural firefighter, he's often called on for comment regarding bushfire resilient design as well. Now, Andy is a director at Envirotecture. He holds both bachelor's and master's degree in in architecture and he's a certified passive house designer. And he's got extensive experience in sustainable design at a variety of scales. 
Andy is currently a board member of the Australian Passive House Association and he speaks regularly at conferences and events. And recently, they started a new business, Passive House Design and Construct. Frustrated by the big challenge that many experience in their new home journey, that is, creating a sustainably designed home that can be delivered on a budget. I know many of you are frustrated by that. You're trying desperately to do it. So Andy and Dick decided that they're going to, they wanted to marry together the design and construction in a total delivery model. Currently New South Wales based, uh, with plans to extend all over Australia, Passive House Design and Construct delivers complete quality, cost-effective design and build solutions. And they design healthy, comfortable homes built to work efficiently from the day you move in and for decades into the future. And ultimately you'll enjoy cost certainty, quality design and an excellent build and a certified passive house because it's their passion to make homes that are better for everyone. If you listened to our last episode, and I hope you did, you'll know that the audio was challenging in parts. Now, this part of the interview was a bit better, but there were still some patchy areas. So we fully transcribed it. You can grab the transcripts on the website. And in this interview, there's a a few places where I do jump in and outline what Andy or Dick were saying in response to my question, because I wanted to make sure that you got all of their great advice. They were so generous, shared so much wisdom. So I wanted to make sure that we fit it all in. So let's jump now into part two. Now, I'd love to get on to talking about Passive House because I know you guys have got a wealth of experience in this and it actually offers, I think, a lot of um, great opportunities, not only for thinking about bushfire uh, areas, but just generally across all areas um, of building and renovating. And so, you know, when we we think about the air tightness of Passive House and the maintenance of indoor air quality that it offers. And I'll pop a link to the resources that we've got on Passive House because oftentimes people, when they first hear Passive House and think it's an airtight house, they think of the fact that they're going to be stuck inside with their own stale air and that's going to be horrible, but that's not what it's about. So, and, uh, and so <laughs> we actually saw during the bushfires um, that it wasn't just those immediately in those areas that were impacted, but there was major air pollution issues across many locations in Australia. We even saw that horrible air travelling across our oceans to other areas. And there was an article that was published in the Canberra Times in March that actually cited some recent research done by um, that was published in the Medical Journal of Australia um, because Canberra in particular had some of its worst air quality on record and they've estimated that the bushfire smoke was responsible for 417 excess deaths and that there were hospitalizations for cardiovascular problems um, respiratory problems I know that there were lots of um, mums very concerned about their bubs at that time and there was actually a call for people to go into a research project if they had babies during the fire um, during the fires to then be able to track has that actually had an impact on their long-term respiratory health. So this is something that happened across lots of states in Australia for that for the first part of 2020. And the, the ability to control our indoor air quality is becoming increasingly paramount, particularly if you look at everybody being locked in at home um, with the current pandemic that we're all, you know, dealing with. And I think that it's quite extraordinary to see what Passive House offers in terms of this indoor air quality. Um, And Andy, before you and I, you know, in our conversations before this interview, you were talking about some of the filtration systems. I spoke about the video that I saw the builder who built his house in the Blue Mountains showing what his filter system looked like during the bushfires and how much pollution it was pulling out before the air came into his home. Can you talk through your thoughts on this indoor air quality, on how Passive House offers opportunities here and what your thoughts are generally on this around your projects 
Andy had such a great answer to this, but unfortunately the audio was terrible. So I'm actually going to quote his response. I'll be talking for quite some time, but I wanted to make sure that you got all the information because it's super handy and really, really fantastic information. So this is what Andy said. So we'll come back to the bushfire piece in a while, but from a general air quality point of view, a certified passive house has 25 to 28 years worth of peer-reviewed journal data demonstrating that they deliver exceptional indoor air quality. There's no shadow of a doubt that these things do exactly what they say they will do, and they've done it all these different climates around the world. So we trust in the science and we just say this is a sensible way to build buildings. So because you have an airtight building or a very well-sealed building and it's well insulated, you have control. Now, for a lot of architects, this may appeal. A lot of people are control freaks. And so it means you can ensure what's happening inside your building. So you've got this continual delivery of outdoor air and then this continual expelling of indoor air. And in normal circumstances today, which is, you know, it's a fairly average day, to be honest, but anyway, you're getting fresh, relatively fresh air, depending on where you are. And therefore your indoor air quality is in many ways equivalent to being outside, except that you're warmer, you're sitting somewhere between 20 and 25 degrees. So in a regular world, passive house comes into its own as soon as your outdoor environment isn't awesome. So whether that be acoustically, so you don't want doors and windows open because you're next to a busy road or a train line, or in the case of Thornley House, you're sandwiched between the two. So you can control your acoustics, but you can still have fresh air. And if you are near anything that's polluting or dirty, then obviously, again, you don't want unfiltered outdoor air coming in. So what we found during the bushfires was this. Well, back to the comment about everybody being collegiate and everyone helping. There's this guy in Melbourne who makes some fantastic indoor air quality sensors. There's a lot on the market that aren't particularly accurate, it turns out. So he makes his own and for a fairly cheap price, he'll sell them to you. So a bunch of us have those in different places around the country. And so that data got analysed and some of those things are in non-passive house buildings. Um, So what we learnt in the bushfires initially was that the passive house buildings or the more airtight buildings with an, uh, an HRV system, a heat recovery ventilation system, there the level of pollution inside those buildings was substantially less than the buildings that weren't airtight and that didn't have ventilation systems. So you were better off in the passive house than you were in the non-passive house. Now we also all learned that the indoor air quality still wasn't great. And the reason for that is because the size of the particulates involved in bushfire are incredibly small. So somewhere around 0.03 micron, whereas the filters are taking out the actually things that are about three times bigger than that. So what has happened? One of the guys put in some hardcore HEPA grade filters and, you know, just did it. It was pretty unattractive, but it was very, it was very effective. And he built like a little manifold box and he did this and he ran his HRV through those filters. Now he's in Canberra and he had fantastic results and got fairly awesome, not quite normal, but fairly close to normal air quality. So while everything was outside, you know, soupy 1900 London, I can't see my hand in front of my face sort of stuff. Um, And so since the fires with some of our suppliers, we've been, you know, well, we've been working with them to design it for us, these manifold boxes where we can actually have additional filters so that when the bushfire events happen or anything else that has particulate pollution outside, you can slot these additional filters in so that you can create that filtration. Now, you don't want to do that on a permanent basis because it puts strain on the fans and it makes everything work harder, uses more power. It's not a perfect solution, but for the, you know, the relatively short bursts when they're needed, it's an incredibly effective solution. And now we'll head back to me. 
Yeah, I think it's incredible in terms of thinking about it. I know lots of people in the past six months have invested a lot of money in um, air filtration, like portable air filtration systems in their homes, and they might buy several of them to put in various different rooms around their house. Whereas if you thought about this more holistically and spent that investment in looking at the air coming into your house in the first place, um, you know, you could actually get a far better, uh, more affordable outcome overall. So, and Andy had this to add. He said, that's the same solution as throwing air conditioners into really crappy buildings, you know, for heating and cooling. You're not addressing the problem. You're addressing the thing that you can do this afternoon because you've got a thousand bucks to burn in your pocket. And, you know, you need a solution to that. But it's not actually a solution. It's a Band-Aid way. That's the best way to describe it. Yeah, I think it speaks to a lot of the way that we build houses. I know that um, Cameron Munro, who I spoke to about his passive house that he did a renovation of in Armadale, and he said, yeah, we just have a mentality in this country where we build whatever house we want and then we spend thousands of dollars heating and cooling it afterwards <laughs> to <laughs> slap a great big box on the side of it to solve all the problems that the house should have solved in the first place. So. And Cameron is Cameron is the sensor man. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I can imagine his sensors would work very, very well. He's uh, he's a very clever man. So now, um, passive house involves a lot of active and passive systems in order to manage its performance overall. And so. When we think about this in relation to bushfires, there's a discussion about active and passive systems, you know, in terms of the combination of how they can work to help your house be more bushfire resistant. So, Dick, you spoke about the possibility of adding sprinklers to the house at Laguna when you build it back. And, I, you know, a lot of people have um, suggested that being a strategy, but obviously it's the operation of them. There were houses, I know that there was a blog of somebody that, house had the bushfire come through and it had a sprinkler system on it but there nobody was there to activate it and it wasn't activated remotely there's also been conversation about are they operated by a system and the system may get taken out by the fires um and then that means that the the sprinklers won't work so how how are you seeing the opportunity to use active systems in some of these areas to deal with the the bushfires um in those scenarios I'm going to jump in here and read out Dick's response. So Dick said, the sprinklers is a classic case and I've traditionally been a bit sceptical about the roles or ability of sprinklers to reliably suppress a fire in that situation. But I suppose I've come around a little bit because of the number of buildings that I've heard of that have survived against the odds with a sprinkler system. And so it's a case of, you know, there must be something in it. And so we looked at another one, a young friend of ours. I don't want to give too much away because it wasn't an entirely improved building. You know, it was not too far from the property in Laguna that we were discussing that's on a bush block. So yet he did it very sensibly and he put a sprinkler in it and it had a little petrol powered pump running it directly from his dam and he was ordered to leave and he was going to stay there and actively defend the property and he was basically ordered to leave. So he fired up the pump before he left and fully expecting that, you know, two days, whether or not two and a half days when he got access to the um, back to the block, that the whole place would be gone. Now the pump had run until it had run out of petrol and the fire front in the meantime had moved through and his house and everything around it was still there. So that was an interesting, you know, that was the Gospers Mountain fire as well. So it was probably eight kilometres from our Laguna house. And I've spoken to a number of people who've done similar things. And so I think the key with sprinklers is to make sure that the system 
is designed to be resilient and that it will run regardless of what is thrown at it and that it will actually it's actually effective in distributing water at high winds that will accompany the arrival of the fire front, sometimes in terms of winds in excess of 100 kilometres an hour. At some point, we just have to go, we lose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is almost literally impossible to resist short of putting people into an underground fire bunker. So that then leads into this discussion of, you know, what can we do? Yeah, we can do sprinklers, but but should we be looking at, at bunkers um, as a, uh, a viable solution? They're permissible in Victoria. Um, they're not really... Um, you can't use them as an alternative solution in New South Wales or Queensland, I don't think. Um, so there are a number of things that I think need a lot more um, research, a lot more um, testing of, of real-world examples. How have they gone? What happened here? You know, to do a bit of forensic analysis and, and see what went on and, and why things worked or didn't work. Yeah, and uh, I think that the bunker conversation is a really interesting one because I have seen where it is permissible. You can actually lower the bell requirements for the house itself if the bunker's in place and affordability-wise, your budget being split over a lower-cost house and a bunker can be far less than having to build the higher um, protective house, the higher the higher resident house. So it does. it's that mindset, I think, of what do you expect to to have on the other side of this and do you do you ex, you know do you expect when you build in these kinds of areas to have a fortress style house that's going to be able to be impenetrable to anything that's thrown at it but this is a thing we can't always predict what can be thrown at it you think of that fire scenario nobody could have anticipated that fires would get that fierce that winds would be that strong that um it would be that 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 extreme and as you say there's no nothing can withstand that so it's um yeah I think that it's uh it's it's highlighting how how uh restrictive a blanket system is in these scenarios and um and and it's like air safety and road safety there's a point at which we go well short of the line in the sand we've drawn that's acceptable risk and we'll live with that. Beyond that, no, that's unacceptable and we'll regulate to prevent it. So we could reduce the road toll to zero tomorrow if we said cars cannot and trucks cannot travel faster than walking pace. That, 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 you know, there would be zero road toll. But we go, well, economically and lifestyle and convenience, but that's not a price we're prepared to pay. So we, we keep the high speeds going and we try and manage the, the, you know, the safety aspects in other ways. And air travel is exactly the same. And, and so it is with bushfires and other things. We say, well, you know, there, there's a line in the sand beyond which we say, no, that's not acceptable. We'll regulate to prevent that kind of risk from happening. But this side of that, that line, yeah, we can live with that risk. Now, for people who have suffered significant property damage, perhaps they've lost their entire home, um, or they've, you know, got a significant amount of rebuilding to do. Where do you suggest people start in their rebuilding efforts in assessing what their next steps are and the strategies that they use to think about what they're going to build back or if they're going to stay there at all? How do you help people navigate that? You know, I, I know I can imagine you've got some personal experience with the client who lost their place at Laguna. How how are you sort of speaking with people about this type of thing? Yeah. Uh, well, first. I guess we we do is we say, are you okay? <laughs> um, and, and that was the surprise with with uh, our friends at Laguna that they, they basically said, yeah, we're okay. Everybody else in you know in the, the gang that that kind of are associated with this are suffering more than we are. <laughs> Although I, I know that Carol shed a few tears on more than one occasion, so 
as you'd expect. You know, so the first thing is, you know, how how are you feeling? Are you okay? And and there are a number of people that uh, have have reported not not so much to us, but but I've seen on on the news and on uh, other um, you know docos on TV that have said, oh, I can't deal with this. I I work on this now. This is just too much. I, I the, the fear is too much. The the event was too much for me. I have to get my head and my physical being into another place. And um, so that's, I guess, the first thing is how brave are they feeling? Are they willing to have another crack at it and, and to sit down and, and do it all again? And, and my guess is that probably nine and a half out of ten are um, because they, for those reasons that you enunciated earlier about wanting to be close to nature and engage with with nature and, and have that um, that regenerative aspect to their life and, and for many people to be able to offer that to family and friends and visitors to, to come and, um, you know, to escape urban environments and, and to spend some time regenerating in the bush or close to the bush. So, yeah, I think most, most owners like that are going, yeah, let's do it again. And then you have to sit down and have that discussion around risk and the degree of um, change that you want to see to the things around you, uh, or the degree of fortressness that you want to design into the building and, and striking a balance between those two things. And, and and that might involve discussions of the ideal, but they have to be kind of sheeted back home to to what is approvable and the reality of, of what can actually be done under the, the current standards and regimes. And Andy, for somebody who might be rebuilding in one of these areas and, and thinking about Passive House as an alternative and um, wanting to look at Passive House certifi certified uh, design and, and build as an approach, how do you think, because that's going to be obviously if they've lost a house that's pre, you know, bushfire codes, um, pre-Passive House even being something that we're familiar with in Australia, how would you recommend that they start that process and that journey so that they're, they're making the right choices from the get-go? In many ways, the journey isn't any different to, to any other form of house in terms of the steps that you need to go through. And obviously, the very first one is working out what it is that you're doing to begin with. And as you know, Dick alluded to before, you know, we always start with a brief, which is the question which the designer is seeking to answer. Um, and obviously, getting the, if you get the question wrong, the chance of getting the answer, the answer right are fairly slim. So starting from that place is, is really good. Um, really... It's then, as Dick just said, of all the elements of resolving from the bushfire perspective, what that really means going forward. So what's your barrel rating going to be? How much clearing do you want to do? Do you have to do? Are you willing to do? Can you get approved? And all of those balances. From the actual design of the building, the simplicity is always going to be the key thing. It's going to make it perform better. It's going to make it more cost effective to build. It doesn't necessarily mean that you build a perfect cube. Um, that will be the most efficient way to build it without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but, you know, you, there's a balance with everything. Nothing, you, you can't be too puritanical in these things, otherwise, well, you just can't. Um, and really, then, it's a case of making sure that you're working with people who know what they're doing. And obviously, we'd advocate for working with people who've done it before. But to be fair, everyone does something for the first time as well. So you don't necessarily have to work with someone who's done it before, but you do have to work with somebody who understands what it is that they need to do. And it's more often than not, it's a case of making sure that for the for the newer, less experienced people, that they know what they don't know. Um, a guy from Ireland this morning on a big global Passive House webinar 
put this lovely graph of um, people's experience through Passive Pace and um, of designers through Passive Pace. And the first step was blissful ignorance. And the second step was horror at my ignorance. Um, and it's the people at the first step you don't want. The point at which they've realized all the things they don't know is actually quite useful because they will then, assuming they're the right personality type, work out what it is they should know in order to give you the answers you need. Um, so you can do that, and or you can work with people who've done it before, which is obviously in some ways easier. But like we said, we're trying to grow the grow the pie as well. So you know, as 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 a community, we have an interest in more people designing and building this way. So and you know, and the well connected people will always know who to ring, which is of course the key in life. So um, I guess sorry, back on the things to make sure you do. Design, a design that's meeting your brief. So if, it's, if certified passive pace is your brief, make sure it's meeting the brief and make sure really, really, really early. Once as a homeowner you're wedded to a design, our experience and yours, I also know from what we're saying offline, um, is that people find it really hard to let go once they've got something they love. You have to make sure that, the, that it works before you fall in love with it. And that's the role of the designer. So as a designer, we won't put anything in front of a client without knowing that we can make it work as a certified passive house because you're selling people on a dream. It needs to actually work. And work for us means, you know, it needs to, in this case, be a certified passive house. It needs to be warm and cool at the right time of the year. But it needs to work as a building. It needs to look nice. It needs to meet all the practical requirements of, of whatever it is that you need it. And, and that's the thing. Like, I think the fact that, there's so many times designs are put in front of people that don't work and yet they, yeah, they just keep barreling forward because it meets a bunch of other criteria and perhaps the homeowner can't visualize how poorly functioning it actually is. And it's not until they move in and have to live with the permanence of those frustrations and regrets that it comes home to roost. Well, so. One of the strands of our business is to do sustainability reviews for, for clients, usually for private clients, but, but sometimes that, um, you know, other People in the, the supply chain will come to us, um, and and we the first phone call will be, you know, is this a good time to do this? And we go, any time's a good time. The sooner the better. Uh, but when we come into that and, and do them kind of later than sooner, uh, yeah, it's that exact thing. You know, there's a whole lot of investment in something that you clearly have to then find a way of saying, well, it's. How can we put this less than ideal, mm. uh, which can be a mask for this is a bloody disaster and you shouldn't be doing it. Yes, those reports can be quite tricky to write some days. Yeah, um, and we've been doing quite a lot for the certified passive for, for passive houses where people have gone gone down a road, suddenly discovered passive house and realised, oh, that's actually what I want. Will my current thing meet the standard? And I spend a fair bit of time doing things to make these buildings work but you're always within the constraints you're given and um, a lot of the projects are we've got an approved DA and we don't mm. want to change a thing mm. it's like okay I can solve your problems but it's not going to be the most cost effective way to build this mm. and this comes back to the cost effective mm. arguments that we were sort of at before we know through experience that if we design the thing to meet a performance criteria from the beginning that we can make it fairly darn cost effective. We also know from, especially from the consulting work, that if you start with something that wasn't predicated on performance, yeah, you can make it work, 
but you're you're just jumping through hoops and and chasing tails or whatever acronym you know weird phrases there are. You know, you, you're making it a lot harder for yourself. So you you always come back to that. You know, the value in the upfront design is 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 off the charts, and when it works, you don't see it. It's like insurance, right? No one likes insurance, but you wouldn't be without it because it's your safety net. Yeah. And and what would you rather? Know that it doesn't work whilst it still lines on a page and can be changed or find that out once you've spent several hundred thousand dollars on making it permanent yep. and it's the mm-hmm. four walls that you're living in on a day-to-day basis and it not only just is something you've invested cash in but it's there, it's going to impact your daily life, you know, and yeah. um, the life of your family. So and potentially Mm -hmm. cause a lot of long-term costs in the artificial heating and cooling and the maintenance of it overall. So I I equally do. I um, do design reviews for some of my online course members and um, will often say I feel like a bit of a dream killer because the feedback that I'm giving is is sometimes quite harsh and um, can be very harsh to hear when you've fallen emotionally and mentally moved into, you know, a home that you've been dreaming of for some time. But for me... Um, what I often say is I'd much rather you know sooner rather than later and we get to dream a, a new dream together that actually will deliver on the kind of lifestyle you're imagining this home is going to provide you. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very, it's very tricky um, when you're in the trenches uh, and you're really attached to the future vision that you have of your home and perhaps can't read drawings and perhaps can't visualise what you're seeing in front of you to commit to taking your time and being patient and getting the right yeah. advice to get that design right because you just want to see yeah. it get built. But, uh, yeah, it's it's honestly it's the best investment of time and money and expertise at that yeah. stage. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I always say you can have the most beautiful quality build, but if the design doesn't work, <laughs> it won't matter how good quality the build is. <laughs> so... A lot of great examples globally of that. Beautiful buildings that are just not yeah. doing what they need to now, lastly, to solve this problem that a lot of people have about how do I get a great design, get it, know that whilst I'm designing it, it's on budget, and then get it delivered the way that I envisaged and it creates a great, great home and a great quality um, build and we have a fantastic experience overall. You guys have put your money where your mouth is and created a business called Passive House Design and Construct. And so I wanted just to wrap up for you guys to talk about how do you see Passive House uh, Design and Construct helping people? And what are your goals and your um, your objectives for that business, uh, you know, overall in terms of how you see it working to help homeowners all over Australia? Okay. Well, so firstly, there are no prizes for guessing what the business does. <laughs> um, after much deliberation, we just went with stating the bleeding obvious. So it came out of a few things that we saw happening and that happened in, in real projects. Um, we are our first certified house. Um, in Sydney, or Sydney's first certified passive house, which we happen to do, um, was a product of a fairly long process of um, tendering and quoting with a variety of different people, building it in a variety of different ways. And at the end of that, I ended up actually writing a fairly comprehensive paper about this because I suddenly realised I had really good data. And basically, we made it cheaper by making it a certified passive house building. And also, so we got to optimise the design but we also worked through it with a particular builder and therefore it was kind of tweaked to suit their preference for building. Um, as anyone who's dealt, spoken to more than one builder will know, no one, no two builders do anything the same. Um, that's both a blessing and a curse. It makes it incredibly hard to predict what a preference would be, which is a better way to do these things. So 
in the commercial world, design and construct is very common and has a fairly poor reputation. If you've been reading anything about apartment buildings in Sydney in the last two years, you'll understand what's wrong with it. Um, and the issue that they face is around quality. So the balance of design and construct. So you design something and then it's constructed to meet a budget. So normally what happens is it's designed to a level and it's constructed and basically cheapened and corners cut to get it down to a price. That doesn't really work. But what we see is that the principle of design and construct, i.e. In the, in the true sense of a designer and a builder working together to work out how to make something work, is, is fundamentally sound. So what we've done is we've overlaid certified passive house on top of that. So from a, from a homeowner point of view, that's your guarantee of the quality. So we can't cheapen the thing down because we have to deliver a certified passive house building. So anything that isn't certified, you might trust us. And to be fair, we're going to do the right thing regardless because that's our nature. But you wouldn't necessarily know that you got what you're paying for. And the entire issue with industry at the moment is the quality assurance is, um, what's the night? Sporadic. And therefore, you don't know what you're getting. You might get a really good thing. You might not. But there's no real way of knowing for sure. Certified Passive House solves that problem. So we've kind of married these three things together and gone, okay, we think we're fairly good designers. We've teamed up with some builders who we think are fairly good builders. They're great builders. They're not designers, and therefore you don't want them to design your house. You've got the experts doing the bits that they do well. We work well together. And it means that when someone walks through our door and says, we've got a budget of X and we want to build something that's about like this, we can look at them on day one and go, subject to coming to look at your site, we think that's viable. We go to look at the site, we go, yeah, we still think that's viable. If they're happy, we design it. We get to a concept stage. We look at it, the builder looks at it and goes, yeah, we can build that for about that. And obviously, this is all rubbery numbers, but it's part of this giant funnel that your building process goes through, where you're starting at the top and you're getting down to a final answer. But it means that as the process continues, we refine and refine and we refine, and we will meet that budget. And that means, as happens with almost all projects at some point, you have a brutal conversation at one point. It's like, yes, you can do that, but not for the budget. And what it enables us to do is make sure that people get the home they want in terms of performance for the budget that they state, which is normally what they can afford, but it means that they get a quality outcome for a price that they're comfortable with. And therefore, you don't spend time and energy on things that don't happen. Everyone gets a built form, a built outcome that works, and the industry as a whole gets to progress because we'll start to see more and more buildings get done more and more cost-effectively because as the more we do these things, the better we get at it, the quicker we get at it, and therefore, from our point of view, we just want to see more buildings built this way. So that's the aim. And in terms of the longer-term plan, um, we have no real scale limitations as such. We know a bunch of builders in a bunch of places who are keen to work this way, most of whom are already building this way anyway. Um, so as the projects appear in different parts of the country, we will um, we will service those as need be. I mean, we talked about Mudgee earlier. We're fairly good at working remotely. Um, the recent times have meant that you know, everybody's working remotely, even if the site's around the corner. So in some ways, it's a helpful illustration of, of the fact that location, whilst incredibly important and site specificity of the design is important, um, also that your geographic location is fairly irrelevant. 
Yeah, we were talking before we jumped on about um, about the ability of designers to work remotely from the sites that they're designing projects for. And I know that um, I've received some criticism for the fact that I will design a house remotely, never having visited it. But I think it comes down to your skill set in terms of being able to read site plans, um, site surveys, looking at aerial mapping. Um, and then also I find that homeowners can do a huge amount to uh, provide intel on what the property is like. A lot of homeowners who are savvy and uh, well-researched and very keen to get a great outcome for their project will do a lot of work to uh, give you really great illustration of what the site is like, what it does in terms of its performance across the seasons and, you know, things that you, you may not be able to pick up from mapping and those kinds of things. So for me, I get really excited by the idea of passive house design and construct because it means that for a lot of people who can't access that expertise locally um, on all levels, you know, for the from the designer, the certifier, the builder, you know, that type of thing, they can perhaps get the access to the other parts of the service remotely um, if there is a, a passive house builder that that can service their area and they can, you know, the, one of the most beautiful things about the passive house system is that you can create reporting and predictability from a design standpoint and then from the construction standpoint so that you, like you said, you do know that you're getting what you've paid for and that, that coming out the other end, the house predictably will perform the way it was designed to. So, And, and also the fact that we have this wonderful national treasure of a resource called the Bureau of Meteorology with their, you know, I mean, okay, it's all rear view mirror stuff, but we can, we can, um, you know, extrapolate some projections about what climate change will do to the data. But, but you know, this wealth of data with wind roses and, and temperature and humidity records um, stretching back through the years. And, and you couple with that with the fact that we've been to most parts of Australia. Um, <laughs> you know, people bring up and say, oh, well, you know, one on the Atherton Tablelands and, and, uh, and and the client said, now, you, you do realise that this is kind of high. We're not like Cairns, even though we're at the same latitude. And I go, yeah, I know, you have you have frosts in winter. And they go, yeah, how did you know that? Because I've been there. <laughs> um, you know, so it's it's stuff like that that really helps as well. Yeah, I think Passive House Design and Constructs are really exciting um, venture. I'm really looking forward to seeing it take, you know, these these projects start to appear around the country and I know how passionate the passive house community is generally to see this be a way of building in Australia and uh, so I think it's great to be able to connect it through a network like this and uh, be able to help clients achieve their passive house dreams for their projects so congratulations guys and I'm really looking forward to seeing how it develops. Thank you. <laughs> I think, well, just to finish up, the last thing I'd like to touch on is just that comment around do we know if Bowel Flame Zone is the thing that will help us create buildings that last. And I know the CSIRO have done a lot of research and work. Um, Dick, in terms of looking at the houses that have been built according to the standards and the their performance in the current fires, what would you like to see happen? How, how would you like to see that data get collected so it actually gives us real information in terms of, I suppose, people making decisions moving forward and they're adhering to the current standards that they're, they're um, being required to? Yeah, so my uh, my understanding is that between uh, all of the the southern and southern state or so uh, the, the southeastern states, uh, plus I guess a small part of southeast Queensland or central coastal areas of Queensland and Western Australia, the southwest of Western Australia, those are the areas where we we get the kinds of fires that we've been you know really focusing on, uh, and that there would now 
after 10 years of the, the new standard, there would be literally thousands of buildings which have been built to the standard and exposed to fires of various um, degrees of severity. And therefore, we, by, by collecting that data and seeing what the actual fire event was, in, uh, and, and that's all been, that, that the severity of the fire would be well understood and could be quantified in various ways by the various fire authorities, um, CFA in Victoria, RFS in New South Wales, they do a lot of analysis of this stuff. So they would know what the severity was, and then we can look at the buildings and see what their damage and or survival rates were. And, and, and you can't make big decisions based on one or two uh, examples, but when you have thousands, you, you've got something that is statistically meaningful. So that, that's what I'd like to see happen, and I've, I've made various submissions to um, the, the Federal uh, Royal Commission and to the New South Wales Inquiry. Um, also, uh, similar thing back in 2010 when the Victorian Royal Commission was on, although we um, you know, had far fewer examples to, to draw from at that point in time, but, but since then. So that, that's what I'd like to see, and... Um, both those inquiries are, you know, in train, so who knows. But um, I, I've made personal representations to the New South Wales Planning Minister on this as well, just to kind of reinforce it, um, the need for it. Yeah, well, he's hoping that, yeah, we definitely do something different this time and that this we use this uh, incredibly traumatic experience that so many went to through to really improve the quality of construction that we do in these areas and be more strategic, I think, in what we build back so that um, mm. it works both at an individual level and a holistic level for us in this country. So I can't thank you both enough for your time. You've been so generous and uh, you've got such a huge around amount of expertise in so many areas of design and construction. And so yeah, we're very grateful that you've gifted this time to the UA community. Thank you so much. My work. Love your work. <laughs> oh, wow. What a great conversation. We went all over the place. I hope you found it really helpful. Thanks so much for persevering with the audio. I know that it was challenging in parts, but Andy and Dick just shared some fantastic and helpful insights and loads of actionable help for your project. So whether you're building in a bushfire prone area or you simply want to build or renovate in a sustainable and affordable way, I'm sure that there were loads of great takeaways uh, from these episodes. And be sure to head to the resources on each of the episodes. You can grab links there to find Envirotecture, to find out more information about Passive House Design and Construct, for links to the various articles that we spoke about in the episodes and that I researched as part of the episodes. Um, there's even information about the houses of the future that we spoke about as well and the cardboard house that you can check out. So there's lots there for you to be able to learn more and also to get in touch with Andy and Dick if you just want to say, hey, great episode or get in touch with them about your project. I know that my guests love hearing from members of the UA community about how they found them and how they enjoyed their podcast. So make sure you do reach out if you've enjoyed it. Now, in the next episode, I'm going to be introducing you to Amy Beatty from Good Green Home Loans. Amy is a mortgage broker and her business, Good Green Home Loans, is not your average mortgage broking business. They actually only source loans from uh, lenders who are environmentally responsible and who aren't using their profit and power to support the fossil fuel industry. So if you've been looking for a sustainable way to finance your home and you want to make more impact with your financing decisions, you'll actually love meeting Amy. She's incredible and she's got loads to share, not only about good green home loans, but also about 
financing your new home or renovation and about what being in a bushfire prone area might mean for your financing as well. Now with all the challenges that are happening generally in finance and especially for those that are rebuilding after the bushfires, these episodes are going to be really, really helpful. So make sure as well that you head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild. We've got all that we're sharing there in the Rebuild and Build Better series. Bookmark it so you can keep checking back because it's growing as an online hub for anyone who's rebuilding after bushfires or wanting to build better and more resilient homes. We've got all the transcripts, videos, interviews, podcasts, all sorts of things there. So be sure to check it out and share with those that you know need the information. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.